History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 68, All the Gods There Are. Last time, we covered the general affairs of the Persian Empire under Artaxerxes I, the long-handed king. The Megabyzid family kept things dramatic in Assyria. Way down in the southwestern corner of their territory, the tiny city-state of Judea was subject to a local dispute over continuing construction in Jerusalem. The Marashu family grew from some middle-class merchants in Nippur to the preferred property managers of the Persian nobility in Babylonia. And of course, the Aegean remained a hotbed of trouble as the Peloponnesian War broke out in Greece. A new satrap of Lydia, Pesuthnes, took center stage in fending off Athenian raids and reminding the Greeks that his territory was not open to their piracy, even if he couldn't lead a proper army under the terms of the Peace of Callias. The Eastern Empire remained as enigmatic and unknown as ever, but the imperial core in southwestern Iran saw notable developments. At Susa, the great palace of Darius burned to the ground early in Artaxerxes' reign and had to be rebuilt. At Persepolis, after nearly a century of construction, Artaxerxes oversaw the two final buildings and then got to put the finishing touches on his grandfather's original pet project. This time, we begin our traditional end-of-an-era ceremonies with an episode on religion. Unlike past episodes on religion, this time I am not talking about Zoroastrianism, at least not as commonly defined. Hopefully, it's pretty clear that the Achaemenids worshipped Ahura Mazda as their highest deity at this point. 
They enforced that belief on other Iranians, but not their whole empire, and even tried to stamp out the worship of something that Xerxes considered divas. All of which I discussed in episode 59, Holy War. However, the divas weren't just any non-Zoroastrian god in the Iranian sphere which we know because the Achaemenids were more than happy to patronize and even worship all sorts of deities that predate Zoroastrianism in Iran. Many of those deities did not get carried forward as part of Zoroastrianism in later generations. This is one of the reasons why some scholars prefer to say that the Achaemenids were not Zoroastrian themselves. Aside from ancient writers, I don't often cite the individual historians I read on this show. Unless they really pioneered a specific idea, my final project is usually a synthesis of a whole bunch of different authors, and it would be tedious to try and list them out loud. That's especially true in these kinds of non-narrative episodes where I have to pull from several different opinions. But today, I really have to acknowledge the work of Dr. Wouter Henkelmann, who is really the guy in the study of the non-Zoroastrian parts of Achaemenid religion. He quite literally wrote the book on it, an exceedingly dry read called All the Gods Who Are. I just want to be clear, I'm not intentionally stealing Dr. Henkelmann's title here. I named this episode, and most of the next 32 episodes, more than a year ago, months before I found this book. However, both titles are referencing the same thing. A line repeated in several Achaemenid inscriptions, Ahura Mazda brought me aid, and the other gods that are. And of course, there are a few variations on that translation, including, and the other gods who are. The same description, the gods who are, is often found in the Persepolis administrative documents. Up to our current point in the narrative, Ahura Mazda is the only deity that has been invoked by name in royal inscriptions. However, this phrase, the other gods that are, has come up a few times. On one hand, this can obviously refer to Zoroastrian divinities. The Yazadas and the Ameshaspentas were certainly included in there, but the Persian word used doesn't limit those options. That word is Baga, and it just means the same thing as God with a lowercase g in English. The vast majority of our evidence certainly makes it seem like this primarily applies to Elamite gods. It occurs to me that I was recently immersed in Elamite stuff for my guest episodes on The Oldest Stories, which you should check out, but it's been a while since I really talked about the Elamites in any detail on this podcast. So, refresher. The Elamites were the first culture to emerge in recorded history from southwestern Iran. The earliest form of still undeciphered Elamite writing appeared at Susa around 3000 BC, not long after similar developments in Mesopotamia and Egypt. For the next 2500 years, Elam had its ups and downs. It formed the nexus of trade between Mesopotamia and the peoples of northern and eastern Iran, 
and beyond that the Indus River Valley and Bactria. At times, all or part of Elam was conquered by the imperial powers of Mesopotamia, and in turn, several Elamite empires occupied their western neighbors over the centuries. In the Iron Age, Elam was still an important and influential kingdom, but mostly constrained to its traditional core in what is now Khuzestan, Fars, and other parts of their immediate neighbors in southwestern Iran. This included all of what we would typically describe as the Achaemenid provinces of Elam and Parsa. They maintained economic and political ties far and wide, but could never truly compete with the Assyrian Empire outside of Babylonia. In Babylonia, they competed just a bit too much. After they backed a Babylonian revolt against the Assyrians, King Ashurbanipal marched into Elam and ransacked the western half of the kingdom in 639 BCE. The exact details that followed are not clear. Elam remained a political entity with its own kings, but those kings abandoned a lot of their grander titles. They stopped intervening in the west, even as the Assyrian Empire fell into a decline. At some point in there, the eastern half of their kingdom, the region ruled by the city of Anshan, became Parsa. Within 90 years, Anshan went from being part of Elam to the capital of Cyrus the Great's empire. Obviously, a whole lot must have been happening in there, most of which we don't know. But one thing stayed the same, and that was the Elamite people. Hell, it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility that a person born when Ashurbanipal sacked Susa was still alive when Cyrus the Great became king. When you look at it like that, it's not surprising that Elamite traditions were alive and well. Dissecting how much influence Elam had on Achaemenid Persia is hotly debated in current Achaemenid studies. Obviously, it was significant enough to be the written language of the early royal archives, but that also skews our perspectives. Most of our sources for life in the Persian heartland are written in Elamite and must use Elamite words to describe anything being recorded. But the same documents also contain a huge variety of Persian and Iranian loan words, including religious terminology. So the Elamite language alone can't explain the presence of Elamite religious principles in the Persian world. Presumably, where Elamite words stuck around, they stuck around because the same beliefs and practices remained in place or changed very little. A lot of older writing on these same topics puts emphasis on the idea that Elamite and Iranian religious spheres remained wholly separate, often citing strict Zoroastrian beliefs as the basis for this claim. Authors who lean a little too hard on Greek evidence especially seem to like the idea that the Magi were a sect of isolated Median priests who only served the Median Zoroastrian community. Absolutely none of that is true. All of the evidence at Persepolis points to a much more integrated religious system in western Iran.
This is also a convenient episode to talk about some religious practice in the Persian heartland. As a consequence of the Persepolis archives, most of the terminology here is Elamite unless stated otherwise. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most people listening to this podcast don't follow a religion that practices ritual sacrifices on a regular basis. You might sacrifice personal comfort or regular meals as part of a religious tradition. You might make an offering of your time and money at your place of worship. Some Muslims might even sacrifice an actual animal at the beginning of Eid every year. But that's not really what I mean. Throughout the ancient world, material offerings to the gods or singular god were practically universal and constant. The most obvious examples that come to mind are usually burnt blood offerings. All over the world, animals were ritually slaughtered and part of their meat, usually the inedible parts, were burnt or otherwise placed at an altar as an offering. This ranged from small birds to massive cattle. In some times and places, this was even how most people got access to meat. It would be offered to the gods and then split between the offerer and the religious officiants performing the ceremony. But this wasn't limited to meat or burnt offerings. Other foodstuffs, especially beverages, were also common sacrifices. The Persian word for offering was doshiyam, which was adopted in Elamite to refer to non-specific sacrifices. A doshiyam could be an offering associated with a specific event, or something falling outside of other official religious practices. Say you just need a little bit of extra divine intervention that day, you could make a doshiyam to whatever god you needed, and that would be the word that applied. The single most common religious event in and around Persepolis seems to be the lan ceremony. Lan is literally some form of the Elamite word to be, the idea that we render in English with words like is, am, being, and so on. In practice, it probably means something like the present offering. Present as in current. Sometimes the lawn ceremony is associated with a specific god. Sometimes it was just offered to all the gods that are. It was a regularly occurring event. The lawn was performed for each relevant god or gods monthly, offering a variety of different items as sacrifices. In the Persepolis archives, this was an even split of sheep and goats to wine, beer, and grain. For the purposes of Achaemenid sacrifices, wine and beer seem to have been equivalents. With the same lawn ceremonies receiving similar quantities of either option in different years. Interestingly, cattle don't feature prominently in any Achaemenid sacrifices, despite their prevalence in nearby regions and in Zoroastrian tradition. It may just be, from our evidence, that the Achaemenid administration at Persepolis didn't own any of its own herds of cattle, so they're not in the administrative receipts. There are a few other specific ceremonies mentioned by name only once in the Persepolis archives. 
Since they're mentioned so infrequently, it's hard to gauge what exactly they were for or how they operated, but they are always accompanied by a list of sacrificial provisions. The largest religious ceremonies were almost certainly the feasts, called ships or shups in Elamite. Feasting is one of those basically universal elements that's almost always tied to religion in one way or the other. The Bronze Age Elamites had ships of their own, but it's entirely likely that this was just an equivalent word for a Persian style of feasting that was markedly different from earlier Elamite feasts. The Greeks often emphasized the unique decadence of Persian feasting and how it contrasted with every other culture in their world. But on the other hand, there's only so many ways you can host a really big meal. Whether or not every shup had a specifically religious component isn't clear. Their feasts, just called shups, presided over by the king, his wives, and his governors, whoever happened to be the highest-ranking official at the event. But there's also a Persian word, bagadoshish. It's literally a god's offering. It was used to describe a specific feast associated with religious sacrifice. These may have been tied to the major holidays associated with various gods, when a truly significant sacrifice, like cattle or horses, served as the centerpiece of a large feast for hundreds of people in the Persepolis administrative complex. Sacrifices and the resulting feasts are the primary religious actions documented at Persepolis. It's practically certain that these rites were accompanied by prayers, hymns, invocations, music, and or particular ritual actions, but the Persepolis archive doesn't document those things. The archive is basically a collection of receipts, and the government didn't need to hand out hymns to everybody to sing, but they did need to hand out sheep. In the case of Iranian deities, we can guess that these were Avestan hymns, or at least hymns in the tradition of the Avesta and the Indian Vedas. In the Elamite case, we have sculptures and reliefs from earlier periods of Elamite history that tell us there would have been a lot of music. There were often drums and string instruments and horns incorporated into Elamite religious festivals. But ultimately, we're trying to understand a religion by reading government receipts, so we're lacking for detail. There are some details, though, like where all these sacrifices were performed. Even though they didn't strictly worship the same pantheon, the Elamites had been plugged into the religious world of Mesopotamia for about 2,000 years at this point. As a result, they had adopted Mesopotamian-style temples long ago, both in the form of large pyramid-like ziggurats and smaller sanctuaries. Temples like this were still being built in the Persepolis region after Elam was sacked by Ashurbanipal, so we should assume they were still around under the Achaemenids too. Large stone and brick buildings are usually good to last a couple hundred years with maintenance. Despite that, those temples just don't factor into Achaemenid records very often. Both Iranian and Elamite traditions 
sanctified outdoor spaces. There were sacred mountains, rivers, and other geographic features that were part of the Elamite tradition long before the Iranians got there. But similar spaces feature in the earliest parts of the Avesta as well. It was a natural melding of ideas. Examples of sacred Elamite sites include the mountains at both Behistun and Naqsharustam, obviously prominent sites under the Achaemenids for other reasons. Pre-Persian Elamite festivals would follow a procession out of an urban area like Susa to these more remote sacred places for sacrifices and festivities. In all likelihood, the addition of Iranian traditions only increased this practice of going out into the countryside for worship. This open-air religious tradition also extended into the cities, villages, and surrounding farmland. Multiple agricultural sites and tools are noted as the location of sacrifices in the Persepolis archive, as are altars in the Persepolis complex itself. These were probably the early stages of the famous Zoroastrian fire altars, places of open-air religious ceremonies where sacred fires represent Ahura Mazda's influence on Earth. Today, and in more recent history, some sacred fires have been moved indoors. Under the Achaemenids, though, the several different words for altar, like shupar and bushar, circulated in dedication to many different deities. Different locations probably called on the gods for different purposes. A sacrifice at the palace in Persepolis could call for blessings on the king and his political goals, while a sacrifice in the fields and pastures could call on the gods for a favorable harvest that year, and you get the idea. The last place we absolutely know was associated with religious ceremonies were the tombs of the Achaemenid kings. The tombs of Cyrus, Cambyses, and the whole necropolis at Naqsharostam were all associated with altars and sacrifices, apparently offerings on behalf of the deceased. Then there's the people making the sacrifices, the actual religious officials presiding over ceremonies and sacrificing animals with their own hands. There were five common religious titles in the Persepolis archives. Within those five, two were major titles and three were minor ones. Minor leagues first. One is an Iranian word that we don't have much context for, Pyramada. It was some kind of religious title, based on context, but nothing explicitly associates it with any specific duties. Then there's the rather obvious Lan Liriria, an Elamite title which denotes someone who carried out the Lan ceremony. And finally, we have the Hator Moksha, once thought to indicate a priest in charge of sacred fires, but actually referring to a priest who was also a bureaucrat. The Hadar Maksha acted as the go-between for the religious institutions and the administration to secure all of those provisions needed to feed the priesthood and make their sacrifices. It's not quite as noble as priests of the sacred fire, but someone did have to do that job. 
all three of these titles appear on their own occasionally, but most of the time they are additional titles for men who were either a makush or a shatin. Makush is just the Elamite pronunciation of the Iranian title magush, or magi as we usually call them. Shatin is the traditional Elamite religious title for their priests. At a glance, you might assume that the Magi handled the Iranian elements, while the Shatin were priests for the Elamite gods. But that's not the case. Ahura Mazda himself was worshipped almost exclusively by men with the title Shatin in the Persepolis records. They were also the only priests to preside over the Baga Doshish feasts. Meanwhile, some of the most important Elamite gods were served almost exclusively by the Magi. Unfortunately, that blows the only obvious distinction between those two titles out of the water. If it wasn't an ethnic divide and it wasn't a religious divide, none of our evidence really helps differentiate between the roles of a Magi and a Shatin. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Now I want to dip as much into the gods themselves and their mythology as I can here. Unfortunately, we just don't have much evidence in the way of Elamite mythology, which is why I'm just able to tag this stuff on at the end. Still, it's always interesting to know 
who the ancient gods were. For today's purposes, I'm going to skip over the Zoroastrian divinities because they're going to get a lot of their own attention in upcoming episodes. Instead, I want to point out the major gods from outside the later Orthodox Zoroastrian pantheon. These were gods that were still worshipped by the Achaemenid kings, their administrators, and their magi at Persepolis. The single most popular god in the Persepolis archives is Humban. Not the most popular Elamite god, but the most popular god of all. Humban appears more times than even Ahura Mazda. So it's probably worthwhile to try and understand who Humban was. The catch is that Humban actually seems to have been very popular with the Elamite people of the wider Persepolis region, rather than anyone in Persepolis itself. The heart of Humban's cult was based in the Falia region, almost 200 kilometers northwest of the capital. Humban's history is a bit weird. Way back, around 2000 BC, he was very popular, but spent most of the Bronze Age as a relatively minor god, only to come back as the most important god of the Neo-Elamite period. That importance carried over under the Achaemenids, too. Humban was the Elamite king of the gods and god of kings. He was the Elamite guarantor of royal authority. Obviously, the Achaemenids publicly venerated Ahura Mazda in this same role, but Humban's continued importance makes it really seem like they recognized his importance and the importance of appealing to this Elamite sensibility, kind of in the same way that they bestowed authority to Marduk in Babylon and Horus in Egypt. Humban just happened to be much closer to home. Another very old Elamite god worshipped by the Persians at Persepolis was Simut, a war god who was sometimes equated with the Mesopotamian god Nergal, who was a god of the underworld. Simut too was very old, dating back to the very first identified list of Elamite gods before 2000 BC. Honestly, you'd think war and death would go together more often, but Simut and Nergal are the only examples I can think of off the top of my head. Simut seems to have been openly worshipped in Persepolis itself. Given Simut's jobs, I have to assume the ancient Elamites had a sense of humor, because his divine wife was Manzat, the goddess of rainbows and pregnant women. Manzat doesn't actually appear in any specific texts at Persepolis, but Simut's continued worship makes a good case for her as well. They almost always shared the same temple. Many of the other gods who appeared at Persepolis fall into the broad category of gods whose sphere of influence or patron elements were connected to agriculture. The most prominent was Adad, once again, particularly in the Falion region, northwest of Persepolis. Adad was a Mesopotamian deity that had become very popular in Elam early on, by at least 1700 BC. As a storm god, 
Adad was responsible for bringing rain to nourish the soil and lead to prosperous harvests. The soil itself was represented by Halma, an Elamite god who may also have been imported from Bronze Age Mesopotamia. Halma was representative of the abstract concept of the soil itself. Kind of an earth god, but not in a mother earth sense. In the same general category, we find several deities with Iranian names, but no known connections to the Avesta. These are probably pre-Zoroastrian gods that still had positive favor in Achaemenid Persia, or gods adopted from other cultures in between northwestern Iran and the Zoroastrian homeland, and the first Iranians arriving in the southwest. This includes Mishdushish, apparently a fertility goddess whose festival occurred every May in the planting season. There was also Marirash, a god of the sunrise. Then there's Shetrabatish, a god whose purpose isn't explicit in context, but he does share his name with several gods in other related cultures who were gods of the fields or gods of the earth. So we can probably assume that Chetrabatish was a god of agricultural work in some way. The last major god in the Elamite pantheon named at Persepolis was Nepirisha, literally meaning the great god in Elamite. Many Elamite gods could be referenced with single symbols in cuneiform, and many early 20th century historians, less familiar with the Elamite pantheon, assumed Nepirisha's symbol referred to the Zoroastrian Varuna. In later Persian and Zoroastrian religion, Varuna was a very important divinity. In reality, though, he's not mentioned once in any Achaemenid context. Nepirisha, though, appears pretty frequently in the Persepolis archive. Nepirisha was very important, but isn't well understood. Typically, he was represented as a great serpent, tied to the primordial ocean before the creation of the world, but probably not an enemy dragon to be defeated as seen in Mesopotamia. Whatever his exact role, the great god was probably associated with the Elamite creation story. Immediately before the Achaemenid period, and presumably continuing under the Persians, Nepirisha was part of a sacred triad of gods, but the other two aren't attested in Persian sources. Those were Nepirisha's divine consort, the great goddess Karirisha, considered the mother of the gods and apparently a mother earth figure all at once, and the third was in Shushanak, the traditional Elamite king of the gods beseeched in issues of political power and war. And just maybe keep that idea of a triad in mind. A triad consisting of the elements creator, primordial waters, a mother goddess, and a warrior king. It will be on the test, so to speak. Other important gods mentioned in other Achaemenid era texts in Iran, but not at Persepolis, include Pinakir, a goddess of love, sexuality, and warfare. She was a close analog to the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, or the Phoenician equivalent Astarte. 
there was also Hunor, a god of legal contracts and the creator of the first humans in Elamite mythology. That's it for the Elamite elements in Persian religion, at least the big-name ones, but the last god I want to mention was actually an Egyptian god. Bess was typically depicted as a squat little man with a big flared beard. He probably originated in Nubia, or even the Horn of Africa, but was adopted by the Egyptians around 1800 BC as a protector of households, especially of mothers and children. By the Achaemenid period, Bess had evolved to be a defender of everything good and the enemy of everything that is evil. With a description like that, it's no wonder that the Achaemenids and other Iranians, so focused on the struggle between Asha and Druge, absolutely loved this guy. Bess was one of the most popular gods in the world for centuries. He was picked up by the Phoenicians in the early Iron Age, and they took the worship of Bess as far away as the island of Ibiza off the coast of Spain. Ibiza is literally derived from a Phoenician word, yeboshim, literally a place dedicated to Bess. In the Achaemenid Empire, statues, idols, jewelry, cylinder seals, and signet stamps depicting Bess in the traditional robes and hat of the Achaemenid royalty were found at Persepolis, Susa, Ecbatana, and as far east as Bactria. In terms of physical evidence for his worship, Bess may have been the single most popular god in the empire, precisely because he was the god of personal protection from evil. Many of these gods we've discussed today are cosmic beings that humanity owed for the creation of the world or the continued success of their farms and fields. Others, like Humbaner and Shushanak, were really only relevant to the royalty and the nobles, Everyone needs a Bess. Next time I talk about religion, it will be to get into the Yashts. The Zoroastrian Avestan hymns dedicated to the Yazadas. There's a lot of those, and they're all important, but they will have to wait. I feel like I've got a good system going here, so there's going to be a whole new King of Kings between now and then. Next time, we start down the road to a new king and to civil war. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments and a Patreon subscription, where for a monthly price, you get access to additional content like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. But the best way, the free way, to support this show is always going to be to tell your friends and tell the internet how much you love the history of Persia. Go out on social media, share an episode, say it's great. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter as just History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.